0: want us to pray together one more time then we will just jump into our bibles father in heaven it is good to be here today as, as we have been in worship of you i've been reminded how great you are lord there are others that would claim to sit on your throne there are others that would claim to be like you some that would even claim to be above you we are all in agreement that that is impossible there is none like you There is none above you. You are our God, worthy of our praise. Our prayer is that our praise will be worthy of you. Lord, as we offer it to you from our hearts, we're asking that you take it to yours and that you accept it. And now, as we open our hearts to your word, what we're asking is that we will be able to stand in awe once again of all that you have done in the past and Together, join with Habakkuk in saying, Lord, do it again in our time. Just do it again and let us see you for who you really are. That's our prayer. In Jesus' name, with all of our faith, amen. A few years ago, I saw this quote. I've never forgotten it. You might not either after you see it. Take a look at this. If you ever see a man walking down the road with an empty gas can, remove your hat out of respect. He is dying inside. There is a lot of truth to that. A great deal of truth to that. You see a man walking down the side of the road carrying that gas can. You know what's happened. He's on his way to the gas station. He ran out. That, for a man, is epic failure. You see, for a man, even for a boy, when he has first tossed the keys to the car, he is given this one instruction. Keep gas in it. Don't let it run out. And so here you see this guy walking down the side of the road, carrying that gas can, maybe even kicking that gas can, thinking to himself over and over and over again, I blew it. The one thing I was supposed to do, I couldn't even pull it off. To a lady, an empty gas can walking down the side of the road, an empty gas tank, is a great inconvenience. But to a man, it is just failure. The most basic of things... We should have been able to pull off, and we couldn't do it. Take care of your machine, it'll take care of you. All kinds of statements come running back through our minds as we're carrying those gas cans. It is terrible. Possibly the only thing that is worse is that moment when you hear the motor beginning to chug, and you know why. You look down at the gauge and you see that it is below E, and you know that you're going to be sitting on the side of the road trying to figure this thing out without ever having to admit what you've done. I wish you could see the number of men that are smiling right now. I wish you could see the number of ladies that are smiling at the men next to them right now, because they know what this is like. So when the car runs out of gas and you're sitting on the side of the road, all kinds of things go through a man's mind. The first thing that we do is is try to blame it on something besides the gas tank. Maybe it just died. So we crank and crank and crank on that motor, hoping that it will turn over. It doesn't. Eventually we tend to run the battery down. We start looking for other problems underneath the hood. Maybe it is something else. We even get into the emotional side of it, the existential side of it, and we start thinking thoughts like this. It really does go through our minds. If my darn kids would have filled this thing up after they took it out on Friday night, wouldn't be sitting here. It's their fault. Or we might even accept some blame ourselves. If I had just stopped on the way home from work last night, I wouldn't be sitting here on the side of the road. And in the worst of situations, our minds will actually go like this. If my parents had loved me more, I wouldn't be here right now this is their fault. Then we go back to trying to blame the car. I saw this one night when Tina and I were living in Missouri. About midnight, this guy ran out of gas right in front of our house. He had another fellow following him in another car. When they ran out of gas, they tried to figure out what was going on with the car without ever looking at those gauges. So a horrible racket started out in front of our house, and I went to the front window just to watch and see what was going on. I was kind of concerned about everything that was taking place. These guys were screaming, they were cursing, they were yelling, they were cranking on the motor until finally they'd run the battery down, and the guy in the second car pulled his car around, they popped the hoods, hooked up the jumper cables backwards, a lot of sparks were flying. That was pretty fun to watch. And then finally, the owner of the car that had run out of gas took a tire iron out of his trunk and began to knock out his own headlights, and he went to work on his windshield. I couldn't stand it anymore, so I walked out there and said, Did you check your gas gauge? And he looked in there and said, Oh, no. And as sure as I'm standing here, a grown man just broke down, started to cry. Now, I don't know if it's because he was out of gas or because he had just worked his own car over. I'm not exactly sure what it was. I can tell you this. I was not feeling particularly pastoral in that moment. So I turned and walked back inside chuckling to myself when they got into the other car and drove on down the road. Next day, came back and picked it up. That's what it's like for guys. We don't like to admit it. We don't want anybody to know about it. Even after we get to the gas station with our empty gas can and we fill it up, it has to be the most dire of situations before we would ever let anybody give us a ride back to our rig because we would have to admit what happened. We would have to let them see it. They would know what kind of a situation we were in, so we'll walk nine miles back before we would ever ask for a ride. Isn't that right, guys? Bob Parsons, you are such a liar. You can come forward after the service. We'll meet over here. My goodness. Every other man in here says that's right. Bob says, no, I wouldn't do it. Maybe that's wisdom too. Or maybe it's experience. Maybe you've just run out of gas a lot. I'd, well, anyway, Bob, that's between you and the Lord to work out. I'm just going to leave it there. You may have never run out of gas before, not petroleum anyway, <laughs> but I would offer to you that your tank has gotten awful low. And not just your gas tank, but the tank that exist inside of you. There are several different ones that get filled up in different ways. And if we're not careful, they get low. At times, they even run on empty, and then they quit running. I sat at my computer this past weekend and just came up with a list of 10 things that might look like that. Listen to these. Maybe you need kindness, but the gauge is on empty with the people that you work with. Or you're in need of hope, but the needle is in the red every time you look at your life. You need rest, but it's Monday and Saturday seems an eternity away. You keep seeing signs for coming gas stations, but the distance doesn't match the miles that you know you have left. You need peace, but it seems when you and your spouse talk, war is imminent. If It's as if there is gas in your diesel tank. You need relief, and the doctors just keep sending you home with nothing but the promise of more tests. All you seem to do is crank on a dead motor. You need a direction, but every road you turn to leads to a dead end, and the needle is falling. As a parent, you need some light to cover the darkness of your child's bad choices, but the darkness is all you seem to get anymore. You don't know if there's enough left to get to the daylight. You've been helping care for aging parents for a few years now, and the best you can do is put a gallon or two in your tank at a time. Full is but a distant memory. You have ten people working for you, and there just isn't enough to keep them busy. Though you've worked diligently to always keep it above a quarter of a tank, you passed that a long time ago. Your reserves are gone. Maybe you used to live on a full tank of the Holy Spirit, and today it seems like you barely have fumes left in your spiritual tank. See, we all find ourselves empty at different times for different reasons and in different ways. We might even see that as an epic failure. We might see that as something that we have done rather than really being able to analyze the situation for what it is. Life has taken its toll on us, and we've not gone back to the gas station as often as we should. We're just empty. I want you to know that if that has happened in your life, there is hope in Jesus Christ there is a gas station in Jesus Christ that can fill your tank back up if you will just go to Him. If you will put yourself in front of Him and allow the Holy Spirit to do what only the Holy Spirit can do. I want to show you why I believe that from Scripture this morning. I'm going to ask you to go to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In each one of those, you are going to find the same story. Terry's going to project for you all of the different references in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John for this same story. It is the feeding of the 5,000. Now, what you might want to do is open up to each one of these, stick a marker there or keep a finger there so that you can flip back and forth through them, or you may just want to focus on the ones that I'm giving to you at any given time. But please understand, this is one of the stories in, in the four Gospels that is recorded by each of the writers, There are not many of those at all. This one was important enough that God said, I want it in each one of these books. Now, in order for us to study it, we're going to apply what I refer to as a multidimensional Bible study technique. The folks that are in my SALT group have been learning that as we've been going through Genesis the last couple of years. There are passages of Scripture that require a multidimensional Bible study Now, if we only look at it one dimensionally, that means that we just read the words that are on the page and we move on past it. But in situations like this, if you really want to understand what's going on, you have to lift the words off of the page, put them in your hand and spin them around. What you will find out is that you can actually study it from different dimensions. This is one of those stories. This is one of those passages in scripture that you can do that with. Lift it off the page, set it in your hand, and you begin to see it from above, from below, and from each one of the sides. In this particular case, it is a triangular passage, meaning there are three dimensions to it. Now the feeding of the 5,000, if you have gone to Sunday school at all, you've heard this story. You've probably memorized portions of this story at times, but you may have never looked at it from a multidimensional point of view. And that's what I want us to do today. Let's start with the dimension of the disciples. They're right there in the midst of the story. The disciples have a very specific role in the feeding of the 5,000. But what you have to understand is what was happening in their life prior to this story. It's the backstory that leads up to this, if you will. You see, they were sent out by Jesus on a missionary journey. They were given these instructions. You go into all these different villages, you cast out demons, and you heal the sick. It is the first time that they had been given that responsibility themselves. They had watched Jesus do it. They had experienced the miracle, but from the role of observer. That's all they had ever done up to this point. And now Jesus says, I want you to go out and do it. They did. And it was unbelievable. That's the way it is with missionary trips. All the time, whether it's short-term, long-term, doesn't matter. It is an unbelievable experience. The disciples lived it. They went into the villages. They cast out demons. They healed the sick. They did things they didn't even know they could do. And now they have come back to Jesus, ready to tell Him all the stories. They're excited. They're like little kids on Christmas morning. Lord, you have to hear what we have done. The only problem is there's a crowd of people following Jesus. They cannot get him alone. They want to, but they can't get him to themselves. So now, spin the story. Let's look at it from another dimension, this time from the dimension of Jesus. Interesting thing happening in his life as well. Right before the feeding of the 5,000, he receives word about his cousin, his friend, the one that baptized him. John the Baptist. He had lost his head. He had been killed. I want you to remember that at this particular moment, Jesus is both God and man. And as a man, he is mourning. He is grieving, weeping over what has happened to his cousin. His heart is burdened by it. The Bible would tell us in the Gospel of Matthew that he just wanted to be alone, He wanted to go to a solitary place, so he got into a boat and he sailed across the Sea of Galilee, but the crowds had been so blessed by him prior to him hearing what had happened to John the Baptist, they didn't want him to stop teaching, so they hurried around the sea, and in order to get to where he was going, boy, did they have to hurry, particularly in a crowd this size. They're running around the Sea of Galilee, the the Sea of Tiberias. Lake of the Gadarenes, if you will. They're getting there as fast as they possibly can so that Jesus will keep teaching them. And all he wants to do, all he wants to do is just go and spend a few moments mourning the loss of his cousin. That's what's happening in his dimension. The disciples are there. They're excited. They want to talk with him and share everything that's going on. Jesus just wants to be by himself and now spin the story again. Let's look at another dimension. There's 5,000 men plus all of their family members. They just want to hear. They want to be with him. They want to experience what he has to offer. They're hearing a message of hope. They're hearing something different than they have ever heard before, and they don't want it to stop. So they're going to do whatever it takes to be with him. Go with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6, verse 30. The apostles gathered around Jesus and reported to him all they had done and taught. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, he said to them, Come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. You hear what he says to them? Their tanks are empty. I see how excited you are. You're running on adrenaline, but your tanks are empty. Come with me and and get some rest. Verse 32. So they went away by themselves in a boat to a solitary place. But many who saw them leaving recognized them and ran on foot from all the towns. And got there ahead of them. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So he began teaching them many things. Did you hear what he said about the crowd? Look at all three of the dimensions, multi dimensional Bible study. Jesus' tank is empty, he just needs to be alone. The disciples' tank is empty, they are running on adrenaline, that's all they have left. And now he says, All of these people, the 5,000 men plus all of their families, they're like sheep without a shepherd, their tanks are empty. And he had compassion on them, and he taught them. He shared with them, because that's what Jesus always does. He puts his own needs aside, and he focuses on ours. When our tanks are empty, even if his is empty, he fills us up. And that's what's going on right here. And it becomes very practical, very physical. We're in verse 35. By this time, it was late in the day, so his disciples came to him. This is a remote place, they said, and it's already very late. Send the people away so that they can go to the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? How many loaves do you have, he asked? Go and see. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Then Jesus directed them to have all the people sit down in groups on the green grass, so they sat down in groups of hundreds and fifties. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to his disciples to set before the people. He also divided the two fish among them all. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces of bread and fish. The number of men who had eaten was five thousand. Did you hear, if you spun the the whole thing back to the dimension of the disciples, did you hear what they said? Lord, it's late in the day. Get rid of these people. Lord, nobody lives around here. We're in a remote place. There is no way that there's enough food for everybody to eat. Send them home. Get them out of here. Jesus says, you feed them. And they said, how are we supposed to do that? It would require eight months of wages for us to feed them, and all they would get is a tiny piece of bread. Lord, send them out of here. Those are people that are speaking from empty tanks. We don't want anything to do with these people anymore. And Jesus says to them, you feed them. You take care of this. It's okay. He's starting to fill their tanks again. They just don't know it. They have no idea that he's saying to them, you get involved here and it's going to help fill you up. Listen to how John records this. We're going to go to his gospel now. John chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. John writes, When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, Man of God. Well, sorry, I just added that part. Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. He already had in mind what he was going to do. Jesus already knew the plan. He already knew how it was going to carry out. So he turns to Philip and says, hey, where do you think we ought to get some bread for these people? Philip says, I have no idea. Then you jump back into Mark's gospel and you find Jesus telling him, you go out into the crowd, you see what we have, and then I'll take care of it from there. He asked Philip the question to test Philip because God already knew the answer. He already knew what he was going to do. He already knew how it was all going to play out. He just had to set the table for him. Philip walked right into it. Folks, you have to know this. God already knows how it's going to play out in your life. God already knows how he's going to respond to your empty tank. God already knows how he's going to fill you back up. God already knows, already has a plan for how he's going to take care of you. He is oftentimes simply waiting for you to catch up. He's waiting for you to say, Lord, how are we going to do this? He's waiting for you to exhaust all of your other resources. And that's what the disciples did. If you look at it from the dimension of the disciples and you read Matthew's account and Mark's account and Luke's account and John's account, what you will find is that they, in essence, were having a meeting without Jesus being invited to it. They'd all gotten together to say, here's the problem. And here's what we should do about it. Then they went back to Jesus to tell him what he should do. Lord, get rid of them. Send them out of here. Drive them out of here. Let them go home. You heard all those things. And then Jesus says, where are we going to buy bread for them? You see, he's waiting for them to catch up. We do the same thing. We really do. Our tanks get low or our tanks get empty. We sit down and talk to a whole bunch of other people. We come up with a plan and then we go tell the Lord what the plan is and we expect Him to catch up to us. Happens all the time. You see, the Bible would teach something different. We go to Him first, expecting that He already knows how it's going to play out. Let me show you some of the ways that that would work. I'm going to give you some scriptures real fast. We're going to go through this. They are scriptures that I would encourage you to hang your hat on so that they become a steady diet for you as you make your way through the issues of life. Let's start with this one. Do you have a great need in your life? Now, I don't want to define it any more than that. We'll just call it a great need. Then you need to listen to the words of Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20. Now to Him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to His power that is at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. You need to know that God is able to do immeasurably more than you could have ever imagined. So whatever your need is, talk to Him because He already knows what He's going to do with it. So you go before Him. Maybe you find yourself with other great needs in your life, I mean huge, huge needs, then you need to listen to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God's able to fill your tank. No matter how low it is, no matter how long it's been sitting there empty, God can take care of it might be possible that for you, your struggle, and this is the thing that keeps your tank empty all the time, is sin in your life, and you just don't seem to be able to get past it, so you don't know what to do with that. I've struggled with it, and struggled with it, and struggled with it. Then the writer of Hebrews can help. Chapter 2, verse 18, he says, because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Listen to the the writer of Hebrews as he said, Jesus has already plowed this dirt. Follow his path. He can help you through it. Maybe you find yourself like Phil Robertson thinking, my sins are just too many. There is no hope for me. And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 25, offers some answers for you. He says, Therefore he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. I don't care how many your sins are or how great they are. The Bible teaches that Jesus can save completely. That means he offers salvation to everybody in this room. He offers salvation to everybody in this community. He offers salvation to everybody in the world. He offers salvation to everyone, no matter how great your sins are. You are not unworthy of the grace of God. If that were the case, we are all unworthy of the grace of God. But the truth is, no one is unworthy of the grace of God because through Jesus Christ, He will save you from all of your sins. Maybe you're looking at your life and you just don't see a future. Everything looks bleak and and pointless and hopeless to you. Then you need to listen to Jude as he says this in verse 24. To Him who is able to keep you from falling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy... To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen, Jude says. You see, if your future doesn't seem to have any hope, Jude says, yes, it does. Maybe your struggle is against some enemies, and you just wish they weren't there. Then you need to listen to Philippians chapter 3, verse 21. And we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Bible teaches that Jesus can bring the worst of your enemies under his control and under his power. When all of that happens, we will be able to join with the prophet Habakkuk and say things like this. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 2. Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time. Make them known. When you begin to experience your tank filling back up being filled by the Holy Spirit, your needs being taken care of by Jesus Christ, you will join with Habakkuk in saying, I stand in awe of your deeds. Thank you, Lord. And sometimes all we have to do is go back to Scripture and hear the stories so that we can say, do it again, Lord. I'm not asking you to do something you've never done. Do it again. You fed 5,000, would you feed me? You took care of all of their needs. Will you take care of all of my needs? Lord, you responded in all these different ways that Scripture lays out for us. Would you respond that way in my life? And do you know what God's answer is over and over and over again? Yes, I will, because you are my child. Because I love you. Because I care for you. Because I created you. Because I promised to do it. I will be there for you. And God does. Now, let's jump back to the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to get into... Some interesting water in Scripture. We're going to do this in about two minutes. But I want you to see this. Mark chapter 6. I'm sorry, Mark chapter 8. Turn back to that gospel. I'm going to show you a story that you may have overlooked or you may have thought conflicted with the other story that we just talked about. In my Bible, it is titled, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Now, it could easily be confused with the feeding of the 5,000, and it shouldn't be. They are completely different stories. And let me show you one of the glaring differences just in the first two verses. Now, let me set this up for you. Remember, the 5,000 ran around the Sea of Galilee. They caught up to Jesus. They listened to his teaching. And when it got late in the day, late in the first day, Jesus responded to their hunger. He responded to their needs. Now, listen to this. Mark chapter 8, verse 1. During those days, another large crowd gathered. Since they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion for these people. They have already been with me three days and have nothing to eat. You see the glaring difference? The 5,000 had their needs met the first day the 4,000, and this happened after the feeding of the 5,000. So they had already heard the rumors of what had happened. They had already heard the story. Jesus fed 5,000 men plus all of the women and children that were with them. He did it for them. He'll do it for us. So I have to wonder to myself, how many people started out with him on day one? Maybe there were 15,000 people that had gathered there, 15,000 men, and when supper time rolled around, they were looking at Jesus with eyes that that communicated a message like this, Lord, we're hungry, what are you going to do for us? And he did nothing. Day two rolled around, and and this time, there's only about 12,000 of them left. 3,000 of them walked off the, the page because they were hungry. So they disappeared, but now we have 12,000 of them waiting, and lunchtime rolls around, and they're looking at Jesus with those same eyes, saying, Lord, we're hungry. We didn't eat yesterday. We're hungry today, and Jesus does nothing, and supper rolls around, and they're expecting Jesus to take care of them because he did the 5,000. Now he ought to take care of us, and do you know what he does? Nothing. Day three rolls around. This time they're down to 4,000. 8,000 people said, that's it, we're done. 8,000 men collected their families and said, we're out of here. That's in my own estimation. And so now we have 4,000 left. 4,000 left. And Jesus says to the disciples, we need to take care of them. And it plays out exactly the same way. They go out, they find out how many loaves they have and how many fish they have. And at the end of day three, Jesus responds and he feeds them. And here's the thing I want you to know from that. We get ourselves into trouble. When we look at the stories of the past or we look at the stories of someone else's life and how God responded to them and we expect Him to do it the same way in our lives. In some people's lives, God responds on the first day. In other people's lives, God responds on the third day. It is your responsibility to stay with Him until He responds. Don't you quit. Don't give up. If you have been dealing with an empty tank for a long time, don't you give up. It may be that you just ran out of gas and it's the first day and you're thinking to yourself, Lord, I need you to respond and God doesn't respond yet. That fits within his sovereignty. It may be that he isn't responding because you're not asking and it may be that God isn't responding because just like the disciples, he is wanting to test you. He's wanting to see what you're going to come up with. Don't you give up. And it may be day two and and your tank's been empty for a while now and you've been praying the same prayer over and over and over, Lord. Lord. Or over and over and over again. Lord, fill me up. I need something to take care of this emptiness. Lord, fill me up. And God does nothing. Don't you give up. That's just day two. Day three is coming. Day three is coming. And God has not forsaken you. He has not forgotten about you. He has not gone on vacation. You stay the course because you don't know when he's going to respond. It may be on day one, maybe on day two, it may be on day three, and it may be on day 10. You don't know. So don't give up. You can stay empty for a while. The Bible would teach us that God knows in his sovereignty and in his love when enough is enough, and he will take care of it and he will fill you up. Your responsibility is to stay with him because he has stayed with you, and he has never left you. So don't give up. I wonder how many people left. Let me close by just sharing a story with you of a man who found out what it meant to stay. In 1949, 11 communists were on trial in New York City. In our country, 11 communists on trial for acts of terrorism they were going to try to overthrow our government through violence. So in New York City, these 11 communists had to stand before the bar, and a judge named Judge Medina was handed the case. The judge took it on. He wasn't thrilled about it because he knew it was going to be very high profile. And in fact, he even knew that there was going to be dangers that would come with it. But still, he took on that case. It was assigned to him, and he did what he was supposed to do. The trial lasted eight months. By the end of it, He was just exhausted, shot. There was constant bickering within his courtroom because the Communist Party was doing everything that they could possibly do to get a mistrial declared. They wanted the whole thing thrown out of court. So they were fighting back and forth, positioning themselves and maneuvering themselves legally, and it wasn't working. And it was taking everything the judge had to do to keep the whole thing moving. And when that didn't work, then the enemies of the court began to threaten the judge's life and they began to threaten his family's life. He was separated from his family just to protect them so that he could do the job that he needed to do. The interesting thing about Judge Medina was he was a Christian and he was praying through this whole time, Lord, give me what I need. And all he saw was all of his reserves leaving him. He saw himself being depleted more and more as he went through this whole thing until finally one day in the middle of court, he had to excuse himself and go into the the room at the back of the courtroom and just spend a few moments by himself. When he got there, he fully intended to stay. He was never going to walk back out into that courtroom. He was done. Listen to what he says. One day I had to leave the courtroom. My head suddenly began to swim. I recessed the court and walked quickly to the little room at the back and lay down. I felt panicky, and I'll be frank about it, I was certain that I could never go back. I had stood as much as a human being could endure. I knew I had to quit. But suddenly, there in the little room, I found myself like a frightened child calling to his father in the dark. I asked God to help me, just to take charge that his will might be done. I cannot report anything mysterious or supernatural. There was no vision or visitation all I know is that I, as I lay on the couch, some new kind of strength flowed into me. I was in that little room for only 15 minutes, but that brief communion with my God saved not only the trial, but my sanity as well. I opened the door and walked again to the bench with a firm realization that I could take whatever was ahead. And that's what happens when God fills the tank. That's what happens when God responds to our needs You just don't know when it's coming, so you stay with Him. And when it happens, then like Habakkuk, you stand in awe of all that God has done. Let me invite you to do that right now. Would you stand with us? We're going to pray together, and I want to invite you, if you do not know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've never had Him fill your biggest tank, which is your soul tank, you do not have the Holy Spirit living inside of you, you can change that today. All you have to do is respond to this invitation. Maybe you've been worshiping with us for a while and, and you need a church home. We invite you to publicly place your membership with this church. And we invite people to do that all the time. You see, that's a, a matter of putting your life and your influence with a local body by publicly placing your membership. Maybe your tank's just empty. You need somebody to pray with you. You need it filled up. Well, you can respond to this invitation no matter what your need is just by going over to this door to my right, your left. Somebody will be there. They will meet you and they will take care of whatever your needs happen to be. Let's pray together. Well, Father in heaven, we all find ourselves either near empty or past it at different points in our life. It's a discouraging place to be. It really is. Wears us down. Beats us up. It exhausts us. But Lord, I know that I'm not sharing anything with you that you aren't already aware of. I know that you know what our needs are and you are ready to respond. So Lord, I'm just asking you to respond, to take care of whatever it is that we place before you. Lord, if it's day one and the answer isn't coming for a few more days, would you give us great resolve to stay with you? If it's day one and you are responding today, then would you give us great resolve that we might give you the glory for it. If it's day three and we don't have much left, Lord, would you meet us right where we are? Take care of us. In Jesus' name I'm asking it. Amen.